listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. Thanks for uh, making space for me. I am very appreciative and very honored to be standing in this spot in place of Pastor Rick this morning. It really is a, a privilege to be with you. This is a good church, and um, this church has done a lot of wonderful things over the years. I remember very distinctly being in college and sitting in some of these seats and even the difference that the church made in my life. And so I am grateful and thankful that you continue to make space for folks like me, even on a day like this. Years ago, I was standing in the basement of the Chicago Art Museum. I am actually a guy who enjoys art. I don't know a whole lot about it. And really, I'm pretty worthless when it comes to what it means, uh, what is really good art and what is bad art. I really don't know that. I just have a deep appreciation for what people have to do to create something like that and what it means for them to invest their lives and to give their time to try to create something beautiful for others like you and me to enjoy. I was standing there one day, and as I was standing there, I was standing between two of my friends. And as we were standing there, we were looking at this piece of art when the guy on my left said, that is one of the most beautiful pieces of art I have ever seen. It is absolutely gorgeous. When the guy on my right said, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I wouldn't even hang that in my basement. That is gross. Now I tell you that today because preaching is very much like art. It is one of those things where we often like to look at preaching and think that somehow when we hear preaching, that preaching really is just a matter of science. If you follow step one, step two, step three, step four, that somehow you'll come up with this incredible sermon. And the reality is, is that preaching is more like art. It's painting a picture of who God is. It's painting a picture of what Christ has the ability to do in your life and in my life. It's painting a picture of how the transformational work of the Spirit and the church can somehow work in our lives in ways that change everything for us. And yet sometimes you and I will sit here on Sundays like this and you'll think, "Uh, you know, that was a beautiful piece of art. And then there are other days where you'll sit there on Sundays like this and you'll say, that was the ugliest piece of art I've ever heard in my life. I wouldn't bring that into my basement. Well, today, if you hear art that you don't like, give it a little bit of time and the new artist, the old artist, the artist you're accustomed to will be back next week. And uh, so if you'll just give me a few minutes today, I want to talk with you about James. James is the book that you have been working through as a church. And uh, Pastor Rick asked, or at least encouraged me, if if I wanted to, to kind of follow the path that you guys have been on. We're going to look today at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James is one of those uh, beautiful and intriguing books for a lot of reasons. James is really, in some ways, very challenging for folks in the church. In fact, fact, Martin Luther... uh, You remember who Martin Luther is, one of the original theologians uh, of the Reformation. Um, Martin Luther uh, hated the book of James, saw really no use for it whatsoever. Uh, In fact, Martin Luther, as far as he was concerned, it really just needed to be literally ripped out of canon and scripture and no longer there. For him, he felt like it emphasized way too much the idea of works. And for Luther, it was really about this idea that uh, we couldn't earn our way into the kingdom. And yet for you and for me, 
um, the book of James is really very intriguing. Sometimes it's intriguing to us because of its sheer simplicity. It is so practical in its day-to-day engagement in kind of explaining to us how we ought to live that it's really easy for us to latch on to. And if you're like me, the, when I open up my Bibles at, and begin to read the book of James, I, I see all these things I've underlined, all these things I've scribbled in the margins, all these things that I've highlighted and circled because uh, if you're like me, the book of James is very practical. It's easy to say, well, this is how I'm supposed to live. James really is not that concerned with Christology. Christology is that idea of, uh, of the theology of Christ. James is simply saying, hey, if Christ is changing you, if Christ is transforming you, then this is how you live. This is what it looks like for you to put this faith into action. This faith to which you were called. James is deeply concerned about the morals and actions of those who call themselves Christians. And the underlying emphasis lies in the belief for James of how we treat each other. So what that means for us is that James is really concerned about this context in which we, he writes, uh, it's a relational context. So it's not just a list of do's and don'ts for James. It's not simply that James is saying, hey, you shouldn't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. James is saying to you and to me, hey, when you engage the world around you, this is how you engage them. This is how you live in relationship to them. This is what it means for you to be the church. Now the unique thing about James historically is that most biblical scholars would argue that James is actually James the brother of Christ. And um, he's the writer of this book. And James the brother of Christ was a man that they used to call camel knees. They called him camel knees because he spent so much time on his knees praying for the church, praying that somehow the church would live into what it was called to be, that he had developed these enormous calluses on his knees, much like you would see on a camel. And so James was this man who who was deeply engaged with the church. You see that even as you uh, begin to open up the book of James and read. You would have heard, now some of you have been here for these last few weeks, and if you've not, then let me just kind of catch you up to speed. The first chapter of James, really in many ways, James is talking specifically about our responsibility responsibility to be doers of the Word. People of action. People who actually live out our faith. But then in the second chapter, James begins to talk about what it means for us and how we view each other and interact with each other and treat those who are different than us. And then finally, James, in the third chapter, and you would have talked about this probably last week with Pastor Rick, talks very specifically about our speech and our language. Now in this, James is not simply talking about, nor is he really specifically pushing the idea of saying, hey, don't use crass language. That's not what he's talking about. What James is really saying to you and me in the beginning of this third chapter of James is that our language impacts the world in which others live. That when we place it in a relational context, our language has the ability to either destroy or create. Our language has the ability to either tear down or uplift. That our language spoken into a relationship can be a force that somehow brings good 
or it can be destructive. So the easiest way to say it is, is for instance, my phone. I can say today, I hate this stupid phone. And most people wouldn't think about it and think that it means much. Yet, if I have the six-year-old kid standing up here next to me and I say, I hate you and you're stupid, you and I understand that we've put that in a relational context. And when I put those kinds of words in a relational context, they have the ability to destroy. Or if I put them, say, different words in that relational context, they have the ability to create something beautiful in that child's life. So, what James is saying to us is that all of this, our actions, our lives, our words, the way we see and view and interact with each other matters in a relational context. I say that to you today because that really is what he's saying in this. So we're going to look today at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. It is James's moment where he is comparing earthly wisdom with godly wisdom. And as he compares these two, you have to keep in mind he is speaking very specifically in a relational context. So, here's what it says. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for, or really the best translation here is by, sown in peace by those who make peace. So James begins this really with a very unique way. James is asking, um, who is wise and understanding among you? In a sense, what James is kind of doing here is he's asking us the question about what wisdom looks like. How would we define it? How would, how would we begin to see it as the church? How, does, how is wisdom lived out and you and I recognize it being lived out in certain ways? Now, for truthful today, defining wisdom is incredibly difficult. There are lots of people for years, for centuries, who have been desperately trying to define wisdom. And if we lined six or ten people up here today and asked them independently without hearing each other to define wisdom, we might get six or ten different answers. And in fact, really even scholars today are working hard to try and define wisdom. What it looks like. How it's played out. How it's disseminated to others and given to others. And often when these... Scholars today begin to define wisdom. They begin to use words like knowledge, experience, community, critical thinking, reflection, deliberation, authenticity, courage, collaboration, even a spiritual component. And so James is ultimately saying to them, 
You need to be able to understand what this wisdom looks like. What godly wisdom looks like. The interesting thing is James begins in the place where you and I would often begin. James begins by saying, hey, let's just start with what godly wisdom doesn't look like. This is earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom looks like this, he says. It's bitter. It's envious. In other words, there are these cravings, this idea that somehow I want what you have. That somehow what you have is better than what I have. That if I could just obtain what he or she has, then my life would be fulfilled. And then James goes on to say that worldly wisdom is not just simply bitter and envious, but it is also selfish and demonstrates selfish ambition. It is boastful and proud. It communicates false truth. There's this sense of disorder and this wickedness that follows it. James is describing for the readers of this letter in the church the idea of what the world's wisdom looks like. And in many ways, it's very similar to what you and I acknowledge and recognize today. These attributes that James describes are often ones that we even see in the world's wisdom demonstrated for us and sometimes ones that our culture tells us we ought to emulate. The idea that the ability to get ahead at all cost, no matter the impact it might have on others. The belief that what's best for me is always the best decision. That if I don't take care of myself, no one else will. Or the idea that somehow I have to brand myself or market myself or narrate who I am so that others believe the very best in me. Or that perhaps it's all about spinning things in a way that I look good. That life is one big competition where I am willing to crush whoever stands in front of me to get ahead. Some scholars and philosophers would describe that as the competition of scarce resources. In many cases, this is what the world celebrates as wisdom. And yet what James says is, That's earthly wisdom. What you and I ought to live into is godly wisdom. So he begins to describe godly wisdom in these ways. You see it there in verse 17. He says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. James is giving us this idea of what peace really is. And he lists out these things that we can identify and see and say, well, that's what peace is all about. James is telling us that our lives lived in godly wisdom produce very specific things. In fact, it sounds a whole lot like the words that are echoed from Paul out of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. You remember those. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. James is making it clear for people like you and me in the church that there are fruits, marks, actions or aspects of our God of godly wisdom that ought to be seen in us 
And he's basically saying to people just like you and me, do not confuse the world's idea of wisdom with that of God's. They are not the same. But James really says, in a sense here, he says, hey, this is what wisdom looks like. Wisdom is this idea of purity. It's peaceful. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy. But it's lived out in these three components. That somehow what it's done is, if you're going to live these elements of wisdom out, then you've got to do it in these ways, James says. And here's where it begins. You see it there in verse 17. He says, without a trace of partiality. That's the very first thing that you and I have to keep in mind if we're going to live out godly wisdom. That if we're going to live it out, we live it out without a trace of partiality. Many of you will remember that in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, James is frustrated with the church. He is infuriated with a church that is discriminating against the poor. How they are playing favorites and showing partiality to those who somehow have more. To those who somehow they believe can get them ahead. And they are bringing those who have much to the front of the church and shoving those who have very little little, all the way at the back of the church. And James says, hey, you can't do that. You need to stop that. That's not what the kingdom is all about. In fact, what James is saying to us is that one of the greatest qualities of our God is His complete impartiality. His willingness to see us all the same. His ability to look at you and me no matter our color, no matter our creed, no matter what it is about us, to see all of us the same. James understands what you and I grew up knowing and hearing and quoting for God so loved the world. Not just a few of us, not some select people, not a particular group of people, but all of us. In fact, the first century church was the one and only place in all of ancient society where social distinctions, discrimination, and favoritism supposedly did not exist. The church was supposed to be a new community, a new way of life. Yet these verses remind us that even within the first generation of the church, they were wrestling with rich and poor, justice and mercy, and favoritism. They were real issues. I grew up in Dallas. I was blessed and fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian home with mom and a dad who loved the Lord and loved the church and made sure that my sister and I were in the church from an early age. I had grandparents that I loved dearly. My, my mom's parents were just wonderful people. My grandfather was a truck driver and, and just this big, kind, gracious giant of a man. Just wonderful. And my grandmother had this in particular gift, this gift that it seems like was a quality that every grandparent has at some level, but she had it like few I've ever seen before. My sister and I and four other cousins, there were six grandkids. And for years now, I mean, ever since we were little kids, when all of us got together, this argument would ensue. 
this rather somewhat sometimes not so heated, sometimes lots of laughter in the midst of it, sometimes filled with stories, sometimes filled with quotes from my grandmother indeed. But this discussion would ensue about who was actually our grandmother's favorite. We would argue for hours about who was actually the one that she loved the most. Who was the one that she cared about the most? Who was the one that she always seemed to communicate that to the most? And which was the one that she cared about more than any others? And invariably, all of us somehow believed that we were the ones that were the favorite. All six of us somehow thought it was us. And my grandmother had this innate ability to convince all of us that all six of us were her favorite. It was a beautiful gift. And the reality is that's a whole lot what James is saying here to the church. He's saying that to you and to me. That somehow God looks at all of us and doesn't choose one of us or a couple of us or even a few of us. God loves all of us the same. That God does not play favorites. That it's not about somehow who has a little and who has much. In fact, what James is saying is in the church, you and I are the hands and feet of God and what we ought to be doing is not playing favorites. One of my favorite theologians is a gentleman by the name of Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen Moltmann's in his 90s, I think now. He's a German theologian. And he writes these words. This is what he says. The opposite of poverty isn't property. The opposite of both poverty and property is community. For in community we become rich in friends, neighbors and colleagues and comrades and brothers and sisters. Together as a community we can help ourselves in most of our differences. In other words, what Jürgen Moltmann and James are saying is this. We have a responsibility to invite others into the community of faith, believing that the very community of faith that is transforming your life and my life can transform the lives of others. That somehow if it's changed me and changed you, it will change them. And so it doesn't matter who they are or what they look like or anything about them as they come through the doors. All we care about is that they're here. In fact, if you begin to read this word in James chapter 2, verse 4, the same idea of partiality, you might have it in a version today where it talks about distinction or judgment. The idea of that, and even this impartiality statement, is about discrimination. Now that's a hard word, and it's a hard word today for the church. But this word in this moment implies discrimination. And what James reminds us is discrimination is incompatible with the law of love. Discrimination at any level is wrong. It's sinful. Racism and injustice are general attitudes that take root in our lives and then spill out in our actions when we choose to live outside of the law of love and the ethics of the kingdom. We cannot... This is important today. We cannot discriminate, dehumanize, use, invalidate others based on perceived financial worth, race, language, creed, faith, age, sex, or even sexual behavior. They are first and foremost children of God, just like you and me. 
And James reminds us that when the poor, broken, or sinner cannot find a place in a Christian church, that that church no longer has a connection with Christ. I love the way Brennan Manning says it. Some of you will recognize that name. Wonderful author. He died a few years ago. Brennan Brennan Manning says it this way. Whenever the Gospel is invoked to diminish the dignity of any of God's children, then it is time to get rid of the so-called Gospel that we may experience the Gospel. James makes no bones about it. Impartiality, somehow judging or discriminating against people because of certain things is wrong. And it's anything but biblical and godly wisdom. In fact, I love the way the message says it. Eugene Peterson says this last verse of verse 18 this way. He writes it this way. You can develop a healthy, robust community only if you do the hard work of, and you'll see this on the screen, treating each other with dignity and honor. Dignity and honor. They are words that you and I understand. The great American philosopher Aretha Franklin would say it this way. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what it means to me. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Take care, T-C-B. Sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. When James talks about these words of dignity and honor, he's really talking about respect. And what James is implying to you and to me is that we don't discriminate because we respect. We respect who they are. We respect the very idea and the fact that the people that we are looking at and interacting with are a child of God. That in spite of the fact that their views and ideas don't always match ours, that we cannot discriminate. I realize today that you and I live in a world that divides, denigrates, dehumanizes, and even destroys others, believing somehow that it's okay, that there's nothing wrong with it. And yet what James reminds us today is that we have a responsibility to respect those who look, live, act, behave. And God forbid, I am so sorry today to say this, even vote differently. That somehow we don't get the right as Christians to treat them the way that the world does. Not because we agree, because Lord knows we don't always agree. If we're truthful, we don't always agree in our communities. We don't always agree in our cities, in our countries, in our churches, even in our homes. 
Unless you live in our home, and then Katie's always right. It doesn't matter what the other three of us say. What we understand and what we know, first and foremost, that those who see the world differently than us are first and foremost a child of the Most High God. And because of that, we will not discriminate and we will respect. But James says this last part that's absolutely beautiful. James reminds us in verse 18. He says to us in verse 18, The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. You see, somehow, here's the deal. If there's one word that James uses consistently in this passage, it is peace. And if there's anything today that we have a struggle identifying and defining, it might be peace. For many of us in a Western, modern, postmodern, evangelical world, we see peace as solely the absence of conflict. But peace is anything but the absence of conflict. There's so much more to it than that. That is not the only way we should define it. And in fact, that's not the way that James defines it. When we limit it to that and solely to that, it's not, it's not doing it justice. The absence of conflict means that there's nothing more than this. You and I are in a conflict. We're having this enormous problem. We're not getting along. We're acting, so, we're acting terrible towards each other. I pull out a gun. I shoot you. You're dead. There's no more conflict. It's the absence of conflict. And yet you and I know that's not peace. Real peace, as James sees it, as the biblical scholars would describe it, as the Word is lived out and shown in this passage, describes this idea of shalom. Strong's Concordance describes shalom this way. Shalom brings with it the idea of completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, Safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, and harmony. In other words, James is referencing this idea that peace speaks to the holistic person. A term, the term for shalom really engulfs all of your life. It's more than simply the idea of the absence of conflict. James is saying to you and to me, Godly wisdom cares about the whole person, not simply the absence of conflict. Jürgen Moltmann again says this. He says, here's what he says. In exile, one seeks home. In alienation, one seeks identity. Love is revealed in hatred. And peace in conflict. In other words, what James and what Jürgen Moltmann are saying is that somehow when you and I move into a world where conflict is so rampant, where somehow others treat each other in ways that is anything but gracious and kind, when we treat each other in ways that do not demonstrate respect, that somehow discriminate and dehumanize, 
that we are not ushering in peace. But when you and I move into a world that lives that way and bring peace with us, then peace is seen in life transformational ways that not only change our lives, but it has the ability to change the world as a whole. We are called to be people who bring, usher, and demonstrate peace when conflict is at its greatest. One of my favorite posters in recent years is a poster that was out by the Mennonite Church. The Mennonite Church is a very, very conservative arm of the church that is primarily in the Midwest and the Northeast. They are a people who are first and foremost committed to peace. They put out a poster in the 1980s. I want you to see it today. It's a picture of a Mennonite lady and a young boy hugging. And you'll see in the picture what it says. It says, a modest proposal for peace. That the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. Could it be that if you and I learn to live peaceful lives together, that you and I could be men and women who usher in peace for the rest of the world? You see, godly wisdom, this idea that James talks about where he describes it with purity and peace and gentleness and a willingness to yield, full of mercy. The way that James describes it is that you and I are walking out and not discriminating in who we give that and offer that to. That we are offering it to people of all kinds irregardless, because we respect them as a child of God, bringing peace that has the ability to transform. Godly wisdom is not found in our need to satisfy our own selfish desires, but instead it is found in treating others with dignity and respect. True wisdom manifests itself in peaceful humility lived in right relationships with the world around us. Perhaps James is right. When James says the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I ask you today, what kind of wisdom are you living into? The earth's wisdom? Or godly wisdom. Godly wisdom looks very different than what the world tells you and me wisdom is. God's wisdom. Peace. Let me pray for you today if I can. Father God, I thank you today. The reminder of your wisdom. We confess in this moment, Father, that sometimes living as a people who live at peace with those who are different than us, who see the world different than us, who act and, and respond differently than us, is not always easy. Respecting and honoring them with dignity, recognizing that they are your children, doesn't always play out the way we wish it did. 
But we pray today, Father, that you would make us a people of peace. A people who see the world through your eyes. A people who recognize the difference that godly wisdom can make in the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.